Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year to you. I'm glad you're here this morning. Thanks for braving the elements to, uh, to join us for worship. I'm Greg Paris, and let me just say another word about financial peace. I'm curious, how many of you have taken financial peace? Raise your hand. This is always a large number of people. As uh, Dave Ramsey mentioned, millions of people have taken financial peace uh, to their benefit, of course. It's the best thing out there right now. It is state of the art. It is top, it is top of the line. It's the best thing. If you have not taken financial peace, I encourage you, I admonish you, I plead with you, please take financial peace. It will change your life and the way you manage your money. I know $109 is a, a, lot, a lot for an entry fee, but here's, I feel so strongly about this. I've been saying this all weekend. I don't know what this is going to cost me. If you can't afford the 109 bucks, give me your name and your address, and I will personally write you a check for $109. Yeah, if you can't afford it, I'll pay for it. I'll, I'll personally pay for your financial peace. And then when you make your first million, you can pay me back. <laughs> It'll be great. So I, I'm, I'm just as serious as I can be. I'm putting my money where my mouth is on this deal. So sign up and show up. It will change your life. You'll be happy for it. I wish uh, when I was 25 years old, you know, Pastor Caleb just mentioned that he and his wife, Rachel, were going to take financial peace. I, I just, I wish this sort of thing was available when I was 25 years old. Uh, because Caleb and all these young guys on our staff right now, I'm insisting that they take financial peace. And 40 years from now, when I'm dead and gone and they're about to retire, they will think about me in very fond terms because of the financial situation they'll find themselves in. So... It doesn't matter, as Dave said, if you're 20 or 60, it can add value to the way you manage your money. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. Really important. Well, in keeping with that uh, theme, this month I want to talk about the blessed life. The blessed life. And today I want to begin the year by kind of outlining from this message, simple little message this morning, unpacking the direction that our church is going to go in 2018. And then at the end, I want to make a prediction for us. So our text this morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel 6. I'm going to read the first 19 verses there. The context here is when King David is attempting to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for the first time. Now, remember the Ark of the Covenant was that box made of acacia wood that God had ordered Moses to construct in the wilderness. It had a lid on it with these cherubim with a with the wings pointing toward each other. It's called the mercy seat. And this box was the symbolic representation of the presence and power of God uh, for the nation in the wilderness journey. And now David feels the need to bring it for the first time to Jerusalem, the, the capital of Israel. And it would represent symbolically the presence, power, and blessing of God. And so we pick up the story there is David's attempting to bring the ark to Jerusalem for the first time. Our custom at Union Chapel is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. Verse 1, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart, brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new ark with the ark of God on it. 
and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, cisterns, cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there because of the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez. Uzzah, Perez means break out. So the Lord broke out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, wearing a linen ephod. Now, a linen ephod, that's the undergarment. So the translation is, David's in his tidy whities dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets... And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, one of David's wives, watched from a window. And when he saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And then all the people went home. I mean, God inspires today through this powerful story. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Now, David, at this point in history, he's not the ready little shepherd boy anymore. He is the exalted king of Israel. He has united the 12, the 12 tribes. There is no more any civil discord and the nation is soundly together and unified behind his leadership. He is the political, he is the spiritual, he's the military leader of an entire nation. His is the transcendent kingdom of his day. This is arguably the most powerful man in the world. And now he believes that one final step is necessary to solidify his place as the leader and also to bring God's blessing to the nation, and that is to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for the first time. And his instincts are good, aren't they? To get the symbolic representation of God's power and presence, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, into Jerusalem, front and center, is going to be a great blessing. He's, he, he eventually puts a tent up, a tabernacle, where this Ark can reside, can be a center of worship for the people in Jerusalem. And so he sets out to do this. He places the Ark on a new cart. This is a Philistine ox cart, two-wheel cart, there is an entourage, a procession, a parade of 30,000 soldiers. There's a choir. There's a band. There are attendants to the ark. This man, Abinadab, and his two sons, one's name is Uzzah, and they're walking with the ark, and it's a big celebration. I mean, the band is playing. It's a big deal. And then suddenly, the, the oxen stumbles, and the ark jostles in a low place, a threshing floor, and as the ark 
tips on this ox cart, Uzzah, one of the boys in this family, who's attending the ark, he reaches out. You know, you would think this is good intentions, right? His motives are good. He reaches out to steady the ark of the covenant on the cart. And he touches it. And the Bible says that the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah for touching the ark. And so he drops him dead. Uzzah is dead. (laughs) Uzzah was a good man. But now he's dead. How many of you know the, the parade is over? The parties, can you hear the last instrument in the band? Coming quiet. David's not only angry, he's also afraid. We, we begin to get a picture here of how the Israelites viewed God. Think about this. He was a God who lived cooped up behind a wall. The Ark of the Covenant was originally placed in the tabernacle, this tent in the wilderness In the Holy of Holies, there's a heavy curtain that separates the priests and their functions and their rituals from the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, behind this curtain. So he's a God who lives behind the curtain. He's a God who lives behind the wall. He's very powerful, and he's a mighty God, and he's dangerous because if he gets loose, if he gets out from behind the wall, comes out from behind that curtain, somebody's going to get hurt. There, they made the mistake with the ark, and he broke out on Uzzah. God made a breach, and he broke out on the, out of the wall, and he broke out on Uzzah, and Uzzah is dead. Three points I want to make on your outline. You want to write this down. Number one, safety over blessing. Safety over blessing. Now, I understand that doesn't mean anything right now, but let me explain. David stops the parade. Perhaps even in a spontaneous way, he looks out in the crowd and he just points to some guy. So what's your name? He said, uh, my name is Obed-Edom, sir. Obed-Edom, great. Do you have a place nearby? He said, yeah, I got a farm just down the road. And he says, great. Obed-Edom, would you mind, just, would you take the ark home with you? I mean, us is, he's still warm on the ground, maybe smoldering. We don't know what happened to him. And Obed-Edom, you know, you can see him going, his eyes start dancing around. He's kicking at the dust. <laughs> well, your majesty, I, I, don't, I don't know. I suppose I, suppose I could if I, if I have to. Perfect. Why don't you take the ark home with you, and, um, and that'll be great. I'll come and pick it up later. Obed-Edom goes, uh, well, okay, uh, your majesty, I, well, I suppose we could, we could put it in the barn, I guess, throw an old tarp over it, try to keep the kids off of it. And so off they go. So at the death of Uzzah, David decides that he's going to live in his own strength rather than in the provision of God's presence and power represented by the ark. He's going to, he's, he's, he's going to set the ark aside, and he's just going to try to figure it out on his own. Now, friends, this is a temptation when it comes to the things of God and his work among us. Listen to me carefully. When the blessing of God's presence through the Holy Spirit becomes real, becomes real in our lives, becomes real in relationships, in a family, in a church, in a city, in a community, in a people group. When the presence of God becomes real, things inevitably get turned upside down. Now hear me. Jesus asked the question one day of his disciples, do you think I've come to bring peace? He said, no. I did not come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. 
Now, that's, that's pretty dramatic imagery, isn't it? He said, don't think I've come to bring peace, but rather a sword. So when God begins to work, it's always good. It's always beneficial. It's always for the best. But it's not safe. It's not safe. I don't know about you. I've discovered in my life, I gave my life to Jesus, and the next thing I know, I'm doing things that I would have never done without him in, his, in my life. I was avoiding things I would have never avoided without his presence in my life. Anytime a life is touched by the presence and power of Almighty God through the Holy Spirit, that life gets shaken. That life gets turned upside down. That life gets changed. Can I get a witness? Change comes when you encounter God in your life. And so this is a decision now that David has to make. Do I bring the Ark of the Covenant with me and expect God's presence and power in in the nation, or do I put him aside? Let me illustrate it this way. There are dozens of denominations in the United States who 100 years ago were functioning with a much higher expectation of God's presence and power in their midst, in their movement. They were open to the activity of the Holy Spirit. And over time, these peoples have withdrawn from the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, these denominations. And the blessing didn't really depart from these groups as much as we departed from the blessing from God himself. And they they essentially parked the Ark of the Covenant in a safe hideaway where God can't break out and create havoc on the normalcy of their religious norms, religious boxes, and in the contemporary context, in some cases, their postmodern, post-Orthodox views. So let's keep God over there, keep a tarp over it, And let's not have God's presence break out in the midst of our movement because we've learned the God stuff and we know all the rituals and we know all the prayers. And so we'll just pretend like uh, we're serving God over here in our religious box. And of course, all these denominations are in precipitous decline. Our particular movement, United Methodist Church in the United States, is declining faster than ever. So I'm simply pointing out that there are going to be dangerous moments. If you want the presence of God, the power of God, you get close to God, he's going to break out. He's going to break out in areas of our lives and our families and our relationships and our churches that may be completely new to us and not altogether comfortable. So we have to live in the tension. And and now you understand the difference between safety and the blessing. You can play it safe. You can live it safe. You can have the same tame, lame experience that you have with God, keeping him in the religious box you've come to be used to. In other words, it's a lot easier to keep God's presence in Obed-Edom than it is to let him break out among us in the middle of Jerusalem. Now, here's the tension that we have to live in. And there is dynamic tension in this regard, especially for us religious people. The tension that we have to live in is the knowing that the same power that broke out on Perez Uzzah, the same power and presence of God that dropped Uzzah dead is the same power and presence of God that can deliver us from our sins, can heal our bodies, can deliver our children from the the opioid addictions that they have, can liberate our marriages, can, can allow us to do missions here and there around the world, changing entire cultures and people groups in Jesus' name. The same power that broke out on Uzzah is the same presence and power that can transform the world. And so we have to live in the tension of that. 
You want to be part of transforming the world? Then you've got to live with the idea that if God breaks out, mm, man, this could cost us. It's always good, but it's never safe. How many of you are glad you came so far? Are you, are you, oh, uh, two. All right, two people are happy about it so far. That's great. Sometime later, watch, David is told about Obed-Edom. He remembers, someone says, your majesty, remember Obed-Edom? He goes, oh my gosh. He, is he the guy, is he that guy that we left the ark with? Yes, your majesty. Oh no. Uh, David imagines he's already dead and all of his family with him. Well, go check on him, see how he's doing. If he's still alive, poor guy. And they send out a scout, come back with this report. We found out about Obed-Edom. David said, let me sit down first. Sits down, all right, give me the bad news. No, your majesty, you don't understand. The house of Obed-Edom is blessed. He's blessed. The, the scripture says that his entire family and everything was blessed at the house of Obed-Edom. Now follow this. They give the report. Obed-Edom's crops are abundant. They're, he's overflowing in grain. He's never seen anything like it. He has to build a new barn. He's got two new silos. He just bought a new John Deere tractor. It's the best tractor I've ever seen. And everything is blessed. It's amazing. All of his livestock are, are giving birth to twins. His, his herds are growing exponentially. His wife is pregnant. His cats are having kittens. His dogs are having puppies. His children are getting straight A's in school. His cows are giving more milk than they can possibly consume. It's unbelievable. Everything is blessed in the house of Obed-Edom. David goes, hey, wait a minute. That's what I was trying to, that's what I was trying to go for. The blessing of God, the presence and power of God. Wait a minute. That's exactly what I had in mind for the whole nation. That's what I want for my kingdom. That's what, I've, that's what I have prayed for. That's what I long for. That's what my heart desires. And now David is at a turning point. And let me just, let me just add then this second point. We seek God's blessing God's way. Write that down. Seek God's blessing God's way. David responds with a realization. We don't run God. God runs us. We don't tell God what to do, what to bless we don't manipulate God into favoring us, preferring us. We follow the will and ways of God, and in that obedience to his best plan, then the blessing follows. Then the blessing flows. Then the provision of God is at hand. And so David learned this lesson. He was willing now to humble himself under the hand of Almighty God and submit to God's way in this particular category of moving the Ark of the Covenant rather than his way. Now hit pause right there on the story. Let me give you some historical perspective. You know, it's so important to study history because what happens to us sometimes is we, is we get genocentric in our worldview. In other words, our generation becomes the only purview through which we see the world. And so we're alive for 60, 80, 90 years maybe, and the only, the only thing we tend to see are the days of our lives. And we don't see what comes before, and therefore we don't get the perspective we need on what God may want us to see right now and what he anticipates doing in tomorrow. So look back in history with me just for a moment. 
In the year 451 AD, there was a crisis that occurred in the church. Some guy named Arius came up with this uh, heretical teaching about Jesus, that he wasn't God, that he, was, that he wasn't the Son of God, that he was created by God just like everyone else. And so he was subordinate to God the Father. And so this began to get traction in the church uh, f- almost five centuries after, after the resurrection of Jesus. And so 451, a council was called in what is now modern-day Turkey in a place called Chalcedon. So the Council of Chalcedon occurred in 451 AD, and they addressed this heresy, this Arian heresy about the, the subject of Jesus Christ. And they settled that heresy. And they came out of that crisis. The church fathers that were leading the church of that area of the world at the time said, we reaffirm our Trinitarian faith that Jesus Christ is the preexistent, co-eternal word of God. And so they reaffirmed a high Christology and acknowledged that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And as a result of that, there were benefits that began to happen. In fact, the church began to grow and explode in, in response to this reconfirmation of the basics of our faith relative to who Jesus is and a high Christology. And so it was after the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD that it occurred to the Christians in the world at that time, this is going to become a global movement. This is explosive growth of the church, reaffirming the centrality of Jesus Christ. And so now fast forward 500 years. So we had the first 500 years to 451, now 500 years more to the year 1054 A.D. And this was a year historians call the Great Schism. This is when the churches in the West and the church in the East split. This is when the Roman church went one direction and the Eastern church went another direction. A lot of historians say it was tragic that the church split, and you can argue that. But the Roman church became the Roman Catholic church because We're the church universal. We're the true church. And the Eastern church called themselves from that day the Eastern Orthodox church. Orthodox means straight, means that we've got the doctrine just right, the Orthodox faith. So we're the Eastern Orthodox, we got it right, or we're the Roman Catholic church in the West, and we're the universal church. And so these two went off on their separate ways. It was a crisis in the church. But look what happened. As a result of this redefinition of who we are and what we believe, the church exploded around the world. Missions were established, and missionaries went all over the place. Churches were established around the world, and Christianity truly became a global movement as a result of responding to that crisis. Now, fast forward, how many years do you suspect? 500 years more. And now we're at the year 1517. There's a gentleman by the name of Martin Luther. He's living in Germany. He's a, he's a priest, and he knows that the church is in crisis. The church is teaching things that aren't biblical, and he rediscovers the gospel, and he writes 95 theses. And on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails these theses on the door of the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. And this was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation issued forth now in subsequent years, branched out into four different limbs or branches of the church, the Lutheran, the Reformed, the Anglican, and the Radical. And as a result of that, the same thing happened. Each of of these 500-year response to crises in the church, hundreds of thousands of new Christians came into the faith. Massive new thrust in church planting. 
Uh, the Wesleyan revivals were an extension of that struggle in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we're Methodists. We came out of the Wesleyan revival, and we are a product. That's why we call ourselves Protestants. We protested with Luther, 1517, and the movement has been a global effect. Massive growth in response to the crisis that occurred in the church in 1517. Now, some of you are already doing the math. The 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation was just this past October 31st, 2017. You and I happen to be alive at a very critical and pivotal and providential moment in time. You just happen to be alive on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And when we look at these historical markers, it seems that every 500 years, God has this yard sale where, where he shakes the church free from various besetting attachments, cultural compromises. Anytime in these pivotal moments in history when the church has been in crisis and the church is in crisis... God has raised up men and women to engage the authentic faith once delivered to the saints, to embrace, for example, biblical fidelity. This has been historically true of the saints in these pivotal moments. High Christology, a high opinion of who Jesus is, Trinitarianism, a Trinitarian faith, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, discipled, disciplined believers every time in history. The people of faith have congregated together in groups, face-to-face -face groups, and encouraged one another, devoted themselves to prayer, and recommitted themselves to global missions. These are the themes which have reemerged at every major great awakening in the history of the church. And there are many scholars, many Christian leaders who are emerging today who believe, as I believe, that we are on the cusp of another great move of God in our time. I believe it. Not only do I believe it, I know it's essential. It's, in, it's necessary because we're in crisis. And so it's time to pray. It's time to re-embrace the basic and fundamentals of our faith and to stay on mission and trust one another that we might sow seeds in our lifetimes of another great awakening. Amen. Somebody say amen to that. Now, here's what we're going to do at Union Chapel in 2018. Let me lay, lay the year out just briefly. In the first quarter of the year, we are going to engage in a campaign of prayer. During the season of Lent, beginning mid-February next month, we are going to do a campaign called 40 Days of Prayer. And leading right up to Easter during Lent, we are going to talk about prayer, teach about prayer, offer prayer resources, and call each other to prayer. Some of you are intercessors. This is your this is your move, this is your gift, this is your passion, and this will be easy for you. You'll get right into this, and you'll just go fast really quickly. Others of us, listen to me, you don't even pray. The only time you pray is when, you're, when, when your finances aren't working or the doctor gives you a bad diagnosis, and you get serious about prayer. Okay. Everyone can learn to take a step in their journey of prayer, and that's what we're going to do. Wouldn't it be better if you learned a little bit about prayer and you actually started to pray? That'd be good. That'd be better. Wouldn't it be nice if we get to the end of the year and you actually have a, 
a concept of what it means to pray and the benefits of prayer? It'd be great. So we're going to pray. And not just, just, not just a devotional prayer, but we're going to engage in travailing prayer, which means, God, if you don't do something, we're lost. God, if you don't intervene in our world, we're losing. I mean, the world's upside down. The church is in crisis. Lord, if you don't come and help us, we're in trouble. Can, can you hear, the, can you hear the, the members of the Council of Chalcedon praying the same prayer, travailing prayer? God, the gospel threatens to come off the rails. We're going to lose the whole message. Church is going to dissolve if we don't get this right about Jesus. Could you hear them praying? And how about at the Great Schism? And how about at the Protestant Reformation? This is what the saints did. And now we're 500 years and we're at a marker and we're called now to travailing prayer. To ask God for his mercy to, to come and help us with his power and his presence. The second thing we're going to do this year is we're going to engage in a study on the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. A dependence on the Holy Spirit. This is another earmark of the seeds that were sown throughout history sowing for a great awakening. And so... Right after Easter, the six weeks between Easter and Pentecost, we're going to teach and preach on the Holy Spirit. Our small groups will be engaged in this activity. Dependence on God's presence and God's strength. We're going to take the tarp off the ark, and we're going to bring the ark and set it front and center. <laughs> now, that's good. It's not safe. It's good, but don't think Jesus will show up to bring peace. It just means change is coming. Change is a coming. So heads up. Heads up with that. And the third thing we're going to do in 2018 is we're going to emphasize and double down on small groups. Anytime we see the church in crisis in history, we see the saints of God doubling their efforts to hold each other in groups of accountability and encouragement and support and training. We know that Face-to-face -face groups are a key to life transformation, and so we are going to reemphasize the whole year the importance of being part of a small group. Our, our father, John Wesley of the Wesleyan Movement, called them bands, and we want to band people together in disciplined groups where we can learn and where we can grow together. And then the fourth thing that we are going to do, the last thing, is we're going to stay on mission, and we are going to continue to plant churches. 20 months ago, I stood up and said that God has given us a vision to plant churches. It is a strategic and intentional means by which uh, seeds can be sown for a great awakening in our culture, and we are going to plant churches. And I mentioned that we're going to plant 10 new churches in 10 years. That's the goal. Well, in the first 20 months, we've planted two churches, and we have five more churches in the pipeline. That's, that's just very interesting. God is opening doors. Now, the, the 10 churches in 10 years, that was just a, I just said that as a memory peg, you know, so we could hang on to something. You know, if we could do one a year, that'd be something. In 20 months, we've planted, we've launched two churches successfully, and we have five more in the pipeline, and that whole thing just keeps getting stimulated. People are contacting us all the time. Serendipity is happening. Divine appointments are happening. It's remarkable. And so we are, we are going to pray. And we are going to place our dependence, hope, and trust on the power and presence of God. We are going to continue to stimulate one another, encourage one another to grow, and to become 
more fully formed disciples of Jesus, and we are going to stay on mission. Because these are the seeds that the saints have always sown at the crisis moments in history to birth a great awakening. And we want to be part of the solution, and not part of the problem. Amen? And so that is our future for 2018. Now let me get to the last point, and we'll bring this to a close. Number three, you probably already know the fill-in is blessing. If you can spell blessing, you got the whole fill-in. <laughs> Receive his blessings. Now, what David does now is he goes to Obed-Edom. He gets the cart. Now, he's done some research. What is God's way of moving the cart? You don't move the, the I'm sorry, the ark. You don't move it on an ox cart. You move the ark on the shoulders of the priest. The ark of the covenant had rings on all four corners. You could slide the poles through it, and it rested on the shoulders of the priest. And this was the mandate that God said, the only way you move the ark is on the shoulders of the priest. And so David got that right. And, and then he, he also found that one of the other rules with the Ark of the Covenant is you shall not go near it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. <laughs> and so only the priest can touch it. And so David admonishes everyone. He gets, the, he gets the army together, the band together, the choir together, and, and everybody together. And he says, okay, we're going to have the procession. We're going to have the parade. The priests are going to carry the ark. And nobody touch it. They go, no problem. Not touch it. They take six steps. Six steps. That's as far as they get. And the presence and power of God falls on the nation. Falls on David. David immediately stops the whole thing, and he is happy about it. And he's down to his underwear, and he's dancing with all of his might. And he stops, and he sacrifices the fatted calf and, a, and, a, and another bull, and, and, and they're dancing and singing all the way to Jerusalem. And it's a happy time. And they, they get to Jerusalem, and he's still dancing with all of his might. You know, I thought about a way that we could increase attendance. If we just, if we just announce that next week, uh, Pastor Glenn Griner is going to worship God in his tidy whities <laughs> dancing with all of his might, I bet you we could get a full room for that. What do you think? Yeah? I think we might try that. You should come next week. You never know what we might do. But this time, God doesn't perezza on them. He breaks out in his blessing. And everybody is filled with celebration. You can see in the middle of your outline there a definition of a blessed life. Look at it. A blessed life is a life of worship and praise to God. It's a life of worship and praise. It's, it's, a, it's an outgrowth of God's blessing. When you are a blessed person, you're going to be a worshipful, grateful person. And David demonstrates this in the whole nation. People ask the question, do I, if, I, you know, if I'm going to get serious with God, do I have to go to church? You don't have to go. You get to go. Because that's the place where the people of God are celebrating the presence of God and the goodness of God. You get to. Well, well I have to pray. You have to do that prayer thing. You don't have to. You get to. You get to connect with God, with God's people, and, and be part of a pivotal moment in history where you're part of the use of God in sowing the seeds for our great awakening. So, oh God, it's too late. It's too late for our world. It's too late for the United States. We're too far gone. There's too many divisions, too much anger, too much, 
too much corruption, too much carnality. There's just too much. Not even God could rescue the United States. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. Yes, he is. And I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. There's a great verse in the book of Acts referring to the, to the Apostle Paul. And it says this about him. He served the purposes of God in his generation. Then he fell asleep. Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want that as an epitaph? After you're dead and gone? She served the purposes of God for her generation. Then she fell asleep. That should be everyone's goal. Do I have to give my time, my talents, my treasure? I have to give away my stuff? No, you don't have to. You get to. It's a wonderful opportunity. You know, giving, giving is like that. Not under compulsion or obligation or guilt, but out of joy and faith and compassion, gratitude, obedience, cheerfulness. It's the joy of the Lord. See, it's a life of worship and praise to God. And a blessed life, number two, is a life of open-handed, open-hearted generosity. David gets into town. He wants to give everybody something. I mean, millions and millions of dollars. Tens of thousands of people there. He said, now before you go home, here's a loaf of bread. Here's a cake of dates. Here's a cake of raisins. I want everybody to be blessed. Every, I want everybody to have enough. I want everybody to be supplied. I want everybody to have provision. I want everyone to get in, get in touch with what God is doing among us. Open-hearted, open-handed generosity. Someone said you ought to give until it hurts. I just think that's bad advice. I think you ought to give until it helps. Give until it helps. You know the old tar pit, you know, you put one hand in and it just sucks you in. You can't pull it out and you put the other hand in and it's got you and another foot. This is what can happen to us in this life. It, the Bible talks about a spirit of mammon. You know, materialism can grip you. Materialism says to you, whatever you have, don't let it go. Clutch it tight. Desire for more. It's never enough. Hang on to it. But here's what I've learned, friends, and this is an important truth for you. There's only one way to break the power of mammon, break the spirit of materialism off of your life. There's only one way, not two. There's only one. There's, there's no halfway. There's only one way that you can actually be free from a spirit of mammon, materialism in your life, and that is to take whatever it is that clutches you, whatever clutches you and won't let you go, you have to give it away. Give it away. It's the only way to be free. And you want to be free. David was free. This is a guy in his underpants. This guy's free. He's feeling, he's feeling just fine about himself. He's, he's good to go. He's dancing in his underwear. And he's giving everybody everything he has. That's how you be free. Uh -huh. The most compelling definition of King David in the Bible is God's description of him when he says that he was a man after God's own heart. You want to be like Jesus? Then be free. Open-handed, open-hearted. Well, David couldn't give enough. He danced with all of his might for the whole city. And the truth of the matter is that when the Lord comes into a life, when his spirit sets a person free or a church free, it's a spirit of generous giving of loving, expression of joyful celebration, a worshiping spirit. It's an open spirit. Now, here's my prediction for us. 
I've laid out the year, now here's my prediction. If we can manage to do God's will, God's way, in an obedient fashion in 2018, here's what I predict. God's blessing is going to flow. The blessing of God is coming. 2018, a year of blessing. A year of blessing. What you should be doing right now is thinking about that area in your life where you know you need God's touch. You need his favor. You need his provision. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's in your ministry. Whatever the category. Here's here's what I'm expecting. And this is what I predict. The blessing of God is going to flow on you and on us in 2018. Now let's pray about that. Lord, we pause today and give you thanks. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. We thank you for this episode in the life of David and the nation of Israel when they intentionally and willfully and strategically wish to bring your presence and power into their midst. And Lord, we want to be a people who invite your presence and your power. So we pray, Lord, that in 2018 you would come. Come to our church. Come to our lives, new and fresh ways. We know it's not safe. We pray with our eyes wide open. We know it's not safe, Lord, and yet we pray. Because we know that when you are present, your power is released. It is a good thing. And it it evidences in a generous, loving, joyful, worshiping, open spirit. And Lord, this is the kind of people we want to be. And Lord, we also want to be found faithful to be the men and women, the saints of God in this moment of history who are sowing the kinds of seeds that will spring up into a great awakening. Because, Lord, we confess the church is in crisis. We're undone without you. We've lost our way. We've lost our vision. We've lost our purpose. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to see the way and to walk in it, to serve you and follow you obediently, trusting in you, attempting great things, expecting great things. So, Lord, in all these things we pray that you would help us in 2018, and send your blessing in Jesus' name. Now, if you like that prayer, say amen. Amen. All right, would you stand with us as we sing?